The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 65 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I'm not size that all the opinions expressed in this show are my own, not that my president employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, Go to the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Well, we continued the talk on the importance of intelligence last week with my good friend and former colleague, Levi Gunder. And Levi and I, we worked in the Secret Service together. And uh, after he did a stint with Fidelity Investments, he landed at Recorded Future where he is now the, the Vice President of Intelligence and Risk. So it's interesting how they incorporated both intelligence and risk into his title because, and they actually not only his title, but his responsibilities as well, because we've been talking about the important nexus between the two uh, recently and, and how to translate actionable intelligence into a risk-based discussion with the executives who make critical business decisions as well as risk appetite decisions and we've been talking about this over the last couple episodes. So I think the last two episodes, episode number 63 with Paul Kavikia, and last week's show with uh, episode number 64 with Levi Gunder, both emphasized the importance of an intelligence-led cybersecurity program. And I think it's a good idea to break it down for you even further in a future episode. I've been thinking about this. I think we need to get real specific and granular on, on what having – an intelligence-led cybersecurity model really means to someone in, in, a, in a cybersecurity organization. So I think that's to come in the future. So I'm excited about the idea of putting that together um, in a more granular fashion. So I often try to group these cybersecurity topics into continuous episodes. And these last two episodes are really great ones to listen to back-to-back. So if you miss these episodes, I highly recommend you find your favorite playback medium, launch Task Force 7 Radio, Find episodes number 63 with former Secret Service agent Paul Kavikia and episode number 64 with former Secret Service agent Levi Gunder to find out why having a cyber threat intelligence program is an essential asset to achieving your cybersecurity mission. All right here on Task Force 7 Radio. So if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, 
You might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 episodes on playback. Well, you can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world, at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out. TF7 Radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. So we always like to mention that because we love it when you subscribe. So we're making another adjustment, or should I say addition, to the sequencing of how you're going to see episodes in your TF7 library. And so uh, I'm pretty excited about this. And so in addition to posting TF7 radio extras like we did on the Marriott Breach and the Core Breach, which, by the way, if you didn't get to check them out, you can listen to them on episodes 59 and 61. They're really quick and easy listens. they got lots of information. So it's definitely worth your time. But we're going to be posting encore editions of some of the most popular TF7 radio episodes that have been there thus far. And right now, we're on episode number 65. And time is flying. And this week's episode number 65. So we have a, a huge assortment, and we are assembling a, quite a library of Tier 1 guests and information that you can listen to. And since we're acquiring new listeners all the time, our numbers are keep growing every, every month. So I think it would be nice to have encore editions about once a month, maybe once a month, of previous TF7 radio episodes that were extremely popular in the past. I've actually tried this before when we had a holiday on a Monday and I, and I couldn't air a regularly scheduled weekly show because my production managers had off. And I was surprised to learn that the listeners loved it. They loved it. It was very popular. So I was like, wow, this is really great. Maybe I should try this again. So this week, we posted this month's Encore episode of Task Force 7 Radio. It was episode number 38 with the director of KPMG's cybersecurity advisory practice, Mr. Richard Kessler, where we talked about the importance and advantages of having a unified governance model in your organization. And let me tell you something, people love this episode. This was a very, very popular episode. And Richard specializes in information governance, and data governance, and operational risk control over at KPMG, where he is part of the strategy and governance pillar of the organization with a specific focus on enterprise data, information governance, and privacy. So he's a subject matter expert in this space. He really knows his business. So if you get a chance, take a listen. It, it, when you subscribe to us on your favorite playback medium, you'll get notifications on when these very popular TF7 radio episodes appear for an encore edition, which is also very cool. So if you're a new listener, it's better to subscribe. So you might get a, a notice of maybe, hey, this is a, a very special TF7 radio episode that people really love. Maybe this is something that you should listen to. So if you check out your TF7 radio library of episodes, you should see an encore edition of episode 38 right after last week's show, which is episode 64. And if you get a chance, I highly recommend you listen to what Richard's got to say about the success of a unified governance model. That's Richard Kessler, director of KPMG Cybersecurity Advisory Practice on this month's encore episode. That's episode number 38 of Task Force 7 Radio. So, I have a very, very special treat for you this week. 
someone who I've been friends with for some time, and I've been going to her events for years. Mrs. Marcy McCarthy is going to be on with us this evening. And so for those of you who don't know Marcy, she's a total rock star in the cybersecurity world. I mean, Marcy is currently the CEO and president of 10. It's an information security executive networking and relationship marketing firm. And Marcy has more than 20 years of business management and entrepreneurial experience, including founding 10's flagship program, the Information Security Executive of the Year program series, which is lauded by the IT industry as the premier recognition and networking program for security professionals in both the United States and Canada. So in 2015, McCarthy launched the ISE Talent, which specializes in executive level searches as well as high demand security industry skill sets and specializations across all of the industry verticals. So you can see why she's gonna be a really, really interesting guest to have on the show. But I want to tell you a little bit more about Marcy because her background really is impressive. And if, and if you don't know her, I really want you to get to know who you're going to be listening to tonight because she deserves some extra special attention. Here's a little on how much she's been recognized in the industry. So in 2012, she was a recipient of the 4th Congressional District of Georgia Citation where she was lauded for fostering greater visibility and professionalism for the IT security industry. Then in 2013, she was named the Leadership Character Award winner in the small medium business category by the TurkNet Leadership Group. In 2015, McCarthy was named the top entrepreneur in the middle market entrepreneur category by the Atlanta chapter of TIE. And in 2016, McCarthy was also welcomed as an honored member to the Atlanta Girls School Board of Trustees to contribute her extensive knowledge and experience in cultivating young girls' minds and futures, which we're gonna talk about a lot right here on this episode. So, a couple more things to mention. In, in January 2017, she was named the inaugural advisory board chair for the National Technology Security Coalition. That's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that serves as the preeminent advocacy for the chief information security officers across the nation, who through dialogue, education, governance, relations, and, and, relations and talk, in conversation, both unite public and private sector stakeholders around policies that improve national security standards and awareness. So look, she's very much involved in women in leadership. She's, she's a, a, a big speaker. She appears often to uh, talk on cybersecurity issues. I could go on and on about Mac uh, Mar Marcy, but I think you are really starting to get the picture, okay? Ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Marcy McCarthy. Marcy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on today, George. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Yeah, so I'm really happy that you were able to join us. I know you're very busy. You're actually traveling, and, and you took the time out to speak with us, which I can't thank you enough about. I mean, I want to ask you a few questions first. You have such an impressive background, and you've accomplished so much in, in this industry. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this huge role that you play in the cybersecurity industry today? Well, thanks again for having me. And I started my career in the cybersecurity, information security industry back in 2000. Uh, sounds like a, almost a couple decades ago. <laughs> uh, and I was the director of product marketing at SecureWorks, followed by uh, the director of marketing at a company called Lanecoat, both Atlanta-based companies. And I got in the cybersecurity industry uh, really in the infancy. And what was very exciting for me was how I was able to 
uh, fall in love with uh, cybersecurity in that it is the James Bond of IT. It was much more interesting when I before I got into uh, security, I was doing PeopleSoft, um, HR, and benefits, and accounting systems, and all that good stuff. And it was a really lot of fun being out on the road, implementing and training, and users uh, on that technology. But uh, at the end of the day, when I got introduced to a company called SecureWorks, which was a startup, uh, as I mentioned, in Atlanta, and I became their director of product marketing, I just fell in love with cybersecurity, and I knew I had found my passion uh, in our industry. And I think I'm a little bit unique uh, in the cybersecurity industry in that I'm not a chief security officer, actually a, a technical uh, cybersecurity type of professional, but I actually am a marketing and business person, as you alluded to in, in my introduction, and my mission is bringing together folks to connect, collaborate, and celebrate, and really honor cybersecurity executives and professionals for all the great work that they're doing, and I'm out there uh, over 100 plus days a year uh, producing the ISE Executive Performance Awards and Program Series. ISE private dinners in 44 cities, uh, different ISE VIP type of reception networking programs. Again, all different ways of connecting cybersecurity uh, executives that are like chief information security officers with solution providers in a myriad of face-to-face -face marketing and events format. And as I mentioned, I think my perspective is fairly unique, and I'm excited to talk to you today, George, about some of those perspectives uh, in that I get to see the buy side and the sell side of cybersecurity, and my whole job is really understanding the top of mind issues and then connecting those uh, folks that are trying to do business together. And I love it, and I wake up every single morning and say, you know what, I am the luckiest lady in cybersecurity, if not the world. Wow, this is truly fascinating background. I mean, it was obviously not your goal to get into cybersecurity from the beginning, at least it doesn't appear that way from your, from your, um, from your career track. When did you decide, hey, this is what I wanted to do, and how, how did you make that transition, and how did you pivot into the industry? So I got my start in the technology industry back in the early 90s, and actually I really was, uh, my career was in marketing, and I was a HR, uh, working for an HR software company called Essen Systems up in Peabody, Mass., and I was commuting back and forth about 45 minutes plus a day uh, between there and Alston, Cambridge. And one of those horrible commutes, I got stuck for six hours in my car in that it was a snowmageddon in Boston. Now I live in Atlanta, uh, but they have snowmageddons up in Boston. And that was my epiphany of making a life change that really made a big difference in how I found my way down to Atlanta um, and got to go work for uh, a, uh, end user training company where I learned about PeopleSoft and everything like that. But I also got involved with this amazing group of women called Women in Technology. And they adopted me. I was in my early 20s and I was going to make my foray in my career. And I chaired an event called the Women of the Year and Technology Awards. And this is, again, one of my first forays into events and things of that nature. But I met the co-founder of SecureWorks, and she really and I hit it off in that she decided uh, that we could be great partners and work together, and she hired me to be her director of product marketing. So back in 2000, that's how I got my first start in security, 
and uh, fell in love with the whole industry and knew that became my, was going to be my industry where I was going to make my home and make my mark. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, you have such a, a great amount of exposure in the industry. You have so many connections. You talk to so many people. What is the biggest challenge in the cybersecurity industry today, you think? Um, I really think there's a couple of challenges today in the cybersecurity industry. Really, um, the pressure around all these unknown attack vectors and the complexity of the breaches. You mentioned uh, in your intro about the Marriott breach, the Starwood breach. Those are going to be much more commonplace. And until, you know, uh, the, the complexity of them, I think, is really perplexing for a lot of organizations. The second thing I think that's going to really hit us hard is the regulatory uh, landscape in that we've got GDPR, certainly in Europe. We've got some really aggressive privacy laws coming to face in out of California. Uh, we just got our all 50 states having a federal breach, noti or not breach notification law, which I believe there should be a single breach notification law. And then the third piece is really just the talent pool. Um, we, you know, this field is growing at such a rapid rate. There's really a difficulty of finding and cultivating qualified talent as well as retaining them. So I think those three factors are really going to make chief information security officers, uh, you know, very challenged, very busy. And uh, my other thing I would say is the crowded landscape of security solution providers that are out there and the and everyone's saying that they solve the world's problems, but they really don't, uh, and how you get through all that clutter uh, to really find the right company and solutions that are going to really align with your business. So I think those are sort of the top of mind uh, issues that we're going to go look at into going into 2019. So, you know, you mentioned this uh, before as well, being a connector of sort of buyers and, and sellers in the, in the solutions market. I mean, you're in a unique position to spot these trends. I mean, do you think the buyers are really frustrated? Do you sense a, a lot of frustration on the buyer side? And maybe on the seller side, too. I mean, uh, what do you think the, the climate's like in these two uh, spaces? So every year at the RSA conference, the Wednesday morning, we put on a breakfast. And it's a really actually awesome breakfast in that we get, I get a panel of chief information security officers from a cross-section of industries and geographies and backgrounds. And my audience is sales and marketers that are trying to sell to a chief information security officer or security executive. And I ask those questions specifically to the chief information security officers. What's it like to sell to you and what are you looking for in solution providers? And let me tell you, that, that event is uh, well, um, well attended. Well attended, uh, I, bet. <laughs> I bet. I bet it is. Uh, <laughs> and it, it flips the tables of them. I've actually had, over the last couple of years, security executives call me and say, Marcia, I'd love to be on this panel because I am dealing with a myriad of different solution providers and vendors, and everyone wants a piece of me, but they don't really take the time, one, to learn my business and what my challenges are. They see like a headline, like a Marriott's, you know, Starwood type of breach or Target or whatever, and they think that they have the answer to their prayers. The reality is they don't. They don't understand the complexity of some of these companies and where everything's kind of going. Um, Pete Cronus, who's the Chief Information Security Officer for Turner Networks. Yeah, we've he, had him on the show. Yep. Yeah, he's yep. awesome. He just yeah. came out, he had a book not too long ago himself. Yeah, he did, the, yeah. 
one of the things he said is you shouldn't be selling to me for the now. You need to be selling for me to the next, you know, fiscal cycle. Uh, my budget's already planned for, and I've already been, you know, mapping it out, signing deals and, you know, rolling things out. So you need to be thinking about the future of how to sell to me. And that gets a little tricky with a sales and marketer that's selling with a sales cycle anywhere from six to nine months or longer depending upon the solution and how that fits in. Uh, and then I would also say the tactics are a big turnoff um, or turn on for different individuals. We specialize in ISE private dinners where we're bringing together just a really targeted uh, group of security executives that have a vested interest of, um, you know, perhaps learning more about the solution provider that's our sponsor. There's no obligation to buy per se or anything like that. But it's really bringing together to, to collaborate and connect and learn more about the top of mind issues that align with a specific topic. Um, and those types of programs seem to work best. They really are turned off to uh, things where, uh, like, hard marketing, like, or cold marketing, I should say, in that they're, you know, calling, uh, cold calling people. I've seen more and more security executives just turn off the phones in their companies uh, overall. You can't get to them through the operator. They don't even have a phone extension, or if they are forced to have one, the voicemail will say, hi, this is so-and-so. Um, I don't take phone calls at all, but you can email me, and you can go find my email address if you want to, you know, connect with me further. So they're not going to be very, you know, helpful uh, whatsoever. So you really have to, as a sales and marketer, you've got to be really savvy and stand out. You may have the best solution out there, but the reality is there's going to be 10 other folks saying the same exact thing, and you might have a best solution. But how do you really build those relationships? And I think that the most important thing that they'll come out of that breakfast is the power of relationships and the importance because of them. And then that they're trying to, uh, essentially, you know, they're selling trust on both sides of the equation. And if you don't like the person or the company and you don't trust them, why would you be doing business together, especially so in cybersecurity? Yeah, it's a rough market. I mean, it's a, it's a really rough business, too. I mean, some of these sales executives that work for these solution providers, man, they're really hustling. They got a tough job. They got a tough job because, you know, I mean, there's a lot of places where, you know, they have, they, it's all about building relationships, you're right, because I think, you know, the, the old way of sending out these emails and everything, that's just a useless waste of time, uh, in my opinion. I mean, most companies now are building uh, capabilities where they're just, you know, on their email servers where they just take these and put them in the black hole before executives even see them, right? It's just such big uh, waste of time, and it's these relationships at the dinners that you're talking about where they sit down, they have conversations, and they can sort of build that trust that actually ends up in, in a sale eventually. So um, it is it is a, a very interesting market, and it's going to be fun to watch how this plays out over 2019. Marcy, we've got to take a, a, a little break uh, right now, and we're going to go uh, – we'll be right back to pick your brain on a whole bunch of other issues. I have a whole bunch of other questions here to ask you on a bunch of different cybersecurity topics, so stay with me for one second. If you're if a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications. Please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. 
That's George Cyritis at Task Force 7. That's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. So we're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with the CEO and president of 10, Mrs. Marcy McCarthy. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the president and CEO of 10, Mrs. Marcy McCarthy. So, Marcy, I want to sort of switch gears here and talk a little bit about the jobs market and the talent crisis and get your opinion to see if there even is one. I know a lot of people say there isn't one, uh, and which I can't understand personally. But, you know, it, it's been said that there's going to be several million jobs unfilled in the cybersecurity industry over the next few years. 
And this is, comes during a time when developing a successful team with a variety of different skill sets is really more important than ever. So what types of skills are you seeing in high demand and in short supply in this market? Well, I'm seeing that's what's in short supply is the security analyst uh, type of individual, as well as someone that's very knowledgeable about software security assurance, so web app security, application security. I'm seeing those two areas uh, being the most difficult to locate, as well as it, this is more of a newer type of role, and it sort of piggybacks a little bit off the, the security analyst type of role, one that's working in security operations center, is that threat hunter, uh, who's really able to cross and correlate the different threat feeds, all the different data, and kind of build up conclusions uh, on what's happening from inside and the dark web uh, and across that, that horizon. So those are the types of skills that we're seeing um, real needs for. There's a lot of open opportunities for those types of individuals and uh, certainly good security executives out there but that is the top of the food chain, right? A chief information security officer is the, the leader of a security organization. And uh, as more and more of these threats get a lot more complex, as we talked about earlier, you really need some very smart and savvy uh, young folks that have a you know real appetite for correlating that data. Kind of like, again, I think like the James Bond of IT, right? That threat hunting pulling the pieces together, problem solving. Uh, so I think that's a real exciting type of role uh, when you make those discoveries of like a zero day threat and you figure out that there may be a real problem uh, in your organization and you know collaborating with other types of security analysts either inside your organization, that's the importance of building a, a network out there of kind of seeing what other people are seeing and the importance of collaboration regardless, you know, of industry uh, or even competitive type of companies out there. But that's what I'm seeing the high demand jobs for. You know, I think it's interesting, especially around the threat hunting capabilities. And I don't think a lot of companies do this the right way. I've seen a whole bunch of different, you know, definitions of threat hunting and, um, uh, or just hunting in general. And, you know, I, I, I think they're really missing the mark on these things. And, and I, when I think about hunting, I think about this manual process of going in and looking at operating systems and identifying anomalies and, and, and things and, and behaviors in those operating systems that autom automation wouldn't find. And looking at these uh, uh, things, I think this is a very necessary skill set that's really only found, I think, or, you know, historically only found in the military right now. And I think a lot of these guys, they come out and, um, and they're not, their skill sets are not being applied properly in the corporate environments. You have them doing like, you know, basically supplementing tools and still, you know, getting involved in a lot of the automation and, and tools and, ru and running and setting up the tools that, that socks use. And, uh, and I think, you know, uh, this needs a lot more development. It needs a lot more discussion about what this really is. And if you go to some of these guys who really know what they're doing uh, out of the military, they can really uh, explain in a very detailed way 
what what hunting really is about. And I think you know some of these some of these uh, corporate folks get scared when they hear this because they think offensive, offensive, offensive. Yeah. And it really, it really is. When you're hunting your own systems, when you're looking at your own and analyzing your own systems, that's not offensive, right? Um, but, you know, and I think uh, there's just been a lot of confusion around that space. But I could see how this is definitely a, a very, uh, uh, I guess, a skill set that's in demand. I mean, when, when you're talking about, you know, the competitive hiring process here, you know, with the short supply of talent uh, that's going on and, the, the, the aggressive sort of talent war uh, that corporations are engaged in, then you have the, the problem of retention. And, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of crazy things going on in the retention world. Uh, you know, I think my opinion is that, you know, corporations still think they have the leverage, right? They still think and that's how corporations and HR departments work. They have the leverage over the employee, you know, prove to me that your market value isn't what we're saying it is right now. And uh, I got to tell you, man, that's not the case in the cybersecurity world. And HR departments and corporations are quickly learning that they do not have the leverage. It's the employee that has the leverage. And that's really changing the discussion. What are you seeing employers do to retain their highly sought after cybersecurity talent? Well, first, I completely agree with you. I think uh, the HR recruiting departments uh, of yesteryear are really frustrated with the whole hiring process. It's a very competitive nature. When we work when on the ISC talent side, when we work with a client specifically, one of the things we really have to make sure they really truly understand when there's a candidate that comes forth that's qualified, that's met all the criteria that they're looking for, you need to interview them within 24 hours if physically possible. Uh, you can't be on, you know, going on vacation and I'll get to it tomorrow because okay. chances are that threat hunter, that security analyst, that software security, you know, software assurance individual, that person's going to be here today, gone tomorrow, and they're probably being courted by six other companies along the way. So how to really, you know, attract the talent is keeping them engaged. Uh, and that also means uh, in terms of the retention process. Engagement is really, really important. Certainly they're motivated by money. Everyone's motivated by money, but they're also looking at opportunity. What's gonna make my life interesting? You mentioned automation. Well, the monotony of reading log files and not really you know, deciphering data. One of the things I do see is the monotony of a job like that. But when you bring in automation uh, and orchestration to roles like that, and then the, the you know, really, uh, then, the, then the bright light goes on because they're actually feeling they're, they're accomplished something. They're, on a given day, their priorities can change by the hour, and that to-do list can get extremely long. And if not, even for some people, it can be very overwhelming, and then they don't have a feeling of accomplishment. Everybody wants to feel like they've accomplished something when they leave at the end of the day. When you have orchestration and automation into the mix, I mean, some of these uh, tools out there are almost like pseudo video games, but they're really some problem solving tools where they're bringing forth the more and rising to the surface, the real like threat hunting issues, right? Not just the noise that's out there. It's that, and then it allows them to go and tackle the problem, solve the problem, and then walking away with a feeling of accomplishment. So I think what's keeping people to stay at a company is really the engagement process with an individual. What we see with the ISE programs where we're honoring and recognizing uh, security executives and their project teams 
is all those types of things, the highlighting of the good work that they're doing and really promoting that as a positive, not as a negative. You know, there are so many negative things out there about cybersecurity, but changing the face of how you think about it. So that also adds a lot of um, motivation and accolades. So there's nothing more exciting when you see a whole project team come up on stage and they're like beaming because they're so excited for, you know, they've been working on a project for many months behind the shadows and behind the scenes with little recognition and probably zero visibility in their companies. And here they're being honored uh, by, their, by their industry, by their peers for the great work that they're doing and the innovative work that they're doing. So I think that's the real, the real zinger for employers is they really need to understand uh, that it's about really the engagement process and elevating the role. The money is going to be there for sure, and that is part of it. But again, you've really got to keep people engaged and looking at the newer technologies. Um, and then, you know, giving them some level of empowerment so that they're part of the decision-making process. When they're looking at those new tools and technologies out there, give them uh, an opportunity to go in and do the bake-off and lead the bake-off because they're going to know the technologies and their environments better than actually the executive who theoretically is a decision maker. But I hear over and over again from the security executives, it's the team that's really the decision maker. They're just there to sort of sign the bill. Right, right. Do you think that corporations are hitting the mark when it comes to retention? Um, I think what we're really seeing is uh, a couple of things sort of happening at the same time. We have a really strong economy and a shortage of just overall qualified talent in the workplace. Uh, someone was telling me I was uh, over the weekend as they were driving from the Northeast down to their visit their family in Atlanta. They were seeing billboards from Merck and all these companies along the uh, Coles, all these different companies out there trying to just hire basic people to do all this myriad of different things. And the call to action on these billboards was to go to their career page on their websites. So I think we're seeing um, the real flip side or the, you know, or the negative of a positive economy, if that makes sense. You know, you certainly want to promote a positive economy. But when that happens is when you and in this cybersecurity world, you really have almost an inverse relationship of unemployment. So you have people competing over each other uh, and companies, I should say, competing over people that are really good and qualified. So that actually lends itself to figuring out how do we figure out, how do we invest in the next, um, next generation of, of technologists and cybersecurity professionals and people over wall. And you've got to really think outside of the box when you're doing that. And I've actually been involved with a couple of programs that are sort of thinking outside of the box. Uh, I have been involved with an organization called TechBridge. And our mission is to really help eradicate poverty by bringing technology and services to um, those that don't have it. And we've created a program called the Technology Career Program Training Program. TCP and in partnership with the North Georgia Goodwill and we're teaching uh, disadvantaged young individuals that have a high school degree but limited education that may and may not have been an opportunity to go to college for a myriad of reasons it might not have been financially capable for them or they had a life issue or 
or a myriad of different things, but they have the passion and the desire and the aptitude to learn technology. So we're out there teaching them um, uh, front-end development, uh, Salesforce. There's some interest also in cybersecurity. And we're teaching them the importance of, I teach a class to them on LinkedIn uh, and how to use LinkedIn to promote themselves. And when you give people an opportunity and a purpose out there, they're going to be our best source of potential, uh, you know, employees. They're very loyal because they realize what the other side of the flip of the coin is, uh, a minimum wage type of job that's very inconsistent. Here they're able to provide for themselves, their families, and take their entire, you know, family themselves to a whole new economic status and have a purpose. And we're partnering with corporations out there. I also have a scholarship called the Marcy McCarthy Cybersecurity Scholarship that I partnered with ICMCP. And that organization is really driven to help minorities and women um, have a cybersecurity opportunities and the advantages of working in them. So each year I give out two scholarships so that uh, two deserving individuals have an opportunity to get the COPTIA Security Plus certification. So I really believe that there's a lot of different ways out there that we can think outside of the box and really bring forth the next generation of talent and sort of fill that void that's out there. And this is something I'm personally really passionate about doing. So this is really interesting. So we talked about the, the, the shortage of talent and qualified talent in the cybersecurity industry. We know that about 26% of the cybersecurity workforce is comprised of minorities and about 20% of the workforce is estimated to be women, which is up from about 11% that we previously uh, discussed on other episodes of this show in the past. So I know this is a big passion of yours, like you just said. I mean, what can, what can corporations do uh, more to attract women into their, and minorities into their, their workforce? I mean, right now, we just, you know, we're talking about talent wars. We're talking about retention. I got to tell you, when there's, if, if, if talent minorities and talent women out there, and especially when they're coming in and they're analysts and they're, they're going through these uh, analyst programs to get them different experiences in, in corporations, and you're spending all this money to keep them and retain them, and then, you know, they're, they're, they're getting sought after by these other corporations like crazy. They're getting called all the time. You know, it's war. It's war out there for this talent. Like, there's a big fight out there to keep these people. Um, and I guess, you know, in a lot of respects, that's great for them, right? But like I said, they have the leverage. And it's who is going to, you know, who's going to show them that they're more valued in the end. Like, you were talking about the appreciation piece, about the value piece, about how they come up and they – and then with their teams and, and, you know, the recognition that they get, you know, who's going to actually succeed in retaining all this talent? What should people be doing to both attract and retain, specifically in minorities and women? Well, I think you've got to partner with some different organizations and make an investment here. Uh, the couple organizations I mentioned was ICMCP and TechBridge. Uh, and another one that I just recently came across is called Year Up, and they're actually a national organization in that they are providing technical training and classes, and then they, uh, for about a half a half a year, uh, they're learning all different technology types of skills. So they might be ending up in your help center, you know, your customer service center, uh, or you know, there's a new track that uh, you're up in Atlanta just started around specifically around cybersecurity to grow these analysts, and then they go on the flip side for another six months 
and they are interning at these companies uh, like NCR, for example, and SunTrust and all these different companies out there. I think these employers really need to look outside of the box. Certainly they need to have the campus recruiting programs on the big universities, but I think you've got to look at programs like the TCP with TechBridge, as well as, you know, year ups or empowers type of programs in that you've got to make an investment. So supporting and underwriting those programs, providing uh, your executives to come in as guests, you know, instructors type of in roles to kind of explain what's it really like in those types of uh, positions and what do you expect to be there. And then taking them in in an internship capacity uh, so that you can train them and teach them about your culture and your corporate values and, and train them to be what you want them to be like. They're very moldable. That's the most awesome thing because, you know, they, they're overcoming so much in their lives and they realize that there's a choice. There's a, they can look back and go back to what they came from, uh, which, you know, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of challenges, a lot of, you know, negatives, or they can look forward and have a great and bright future by working hard, working smart, and, and, and not expecting the world to take care of them, but rather they are actually the next generation of our career, uh, I mean, our, our workforce, with a, such a positive attitude. And I tell them, actually, one of the important things when they're, you know, at a point in life where they can give back uh, and pay it forward, that's where, you know, I've been able to do things like that but you've got to help move it forward uh, with a whole other generation. And that's how you're going to fill the void uh, of, um, of these, job op you know, these job positions that go unfilled for six, nine months. And uh, you've got to create them. You've got to build them. I mean, if you look about what Apple did many, many years ago in terms of getting their adoption of their technology, their computers, they put them into the schools. They actually gave them to schools. Uh, so the kids that they were learning in the classroom, they were using Apple computers. By the time they were graduating and going into the workforce, they were requesting apples in their, in their jobs. They didn't want the IBM PCs. They wanted apples. And uh, you've got to make an investment for your future. And it's a partnership, you know, with, with the companies and these types of organizations but it takes a mindset of wanting to do that, and really, it's a, it's not a it's not a sprint uh, whatsoever. It's really the long game. So let me ask you. I mean, I saw this number out there, and I forget even where I saw it. And um, that is, there's a twenty percent number that we're talking about. And I know it's been on the internet and several different articles. But not too long ago, we were talking about eleven percent of uh, females in in cybersecurity, and just say there's, let's just toss out a number here. Let's just say there's 5 million cybersecurity professionals worldwide, and I think there's more than that, but, but just to say, let's just call it 5 million for now, and, and say, like, making an even number, 10% of them are, are females, which is, you know, 500,000 uh, are, are females, and then all of a sudden, within months, 20% of them are females, and so now we have another 500,000 females in cybersecurity around the world. Does that seem... Uh, even feasible to you? I mean, do you have a lot of confidence in these numbers is what I'm saying? It seems like that was a pretty big jump from 10 to 20% very, very quickly. Well, I, I agree with you. I was kind of startled. Just, I was encouraged, but startled yeah. to see the, 
the number change uh, in such a short period of time. Mm. So I actually wanted to understand that a little bit better and also reflect uh, that, you know, so when, I, when I'm delivering my programs, like an ISE private dinner, in some cities, I'm going to see 20% of, those, of the, our guests be uh, women, okay? But I go to places like Nashville, and it's all men at our ISE private dinners. And I actually brought that up at one of our dinners, and I've spoken at the ISSA uh, Middle Tennessee conference many years in a row now and I've asked that question like where where are the women in Nashville that are in cybersecurity? Uh, yeah. but I you know I see that I think it's a lot of it has to do with the geography of where they're at um, in terms of location so the mindset uh, of that community or that location but I go to New York and I easily will see 20% of our guests be women uh, there in very good level uh, you know positions as well as minorities but I think a lot of it's geography type of driven uh, overall so when you kind of look at a cross-section and a melting pot of these numbers I do think there I, I always thought the 11% number was kind of low and I was again pleasantly surprised if not startled to see the, the jump or the double so um, I'm encouraged you know I no, am that's encouraged really that's because you know like I'm in I'm in New York City and when I you know when I when I heard the 10% number 11% number I would I would uh, look around the room and I'd say well we have more than more than an 11% you know not a lot more but more than 11% here on a regular basis but now if you're going to say that that population doubled like I, I don't see it like, like I mean, I'm curious about the data pool of what yeah. cities they pulled it from for the, that go around from one year to the next. Right. right. Uh, so, you know, it, it's kind of like, like those polls out there. They're like, so-and-so believes this or whatever. And I'm like, right. what's the data pool really look like under the covers of the whole thing and what geographies, you know, were really, uh, were really contacted for that information. So, but I do think you know, it's probably in the 15 to 20% number. I think the 11% was a little low. Um, but, you know, across the board, uh, when I go to those different cities, I can definitely tell you the, the range of, you know, you'll see by far um, more men at our programs overall than women. I mean, just by far. Right. You know, now, last oddly, week oddly, I actually, my whole entire company is all female. I have all female employees, and it's not by design. It just sort of ended up that way, but uh, we have all female employees. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, last week I was talking to Levi about soft skills, and we were talking about, uh, you know, what, what are some of the things that uh, we look for and when, uh, when you're hiring folks, and one of the things we both agreed upon was intellectual curiosity. So the intellectual curiosity of some of the skill sets that we need to fill these positions uh, it can be challenging when you think about, you know, the emotional intelligence of an individual as they, you know, that, the emotional intelligence required of an individual as they go up the, the sort of the food chain and climb the corporate ladder. And, you know, you've been asked to speak about this topic often. So what kind of tips can you share with, with our audience about the importance of the developing soft skills and, the, and the, as well as, you know, the, the skills that come with intellectual curiosity and such? And what kind of impact can they have within a security team for a company? 
Well, I think first, everyone needs to understand, and I probably agree with, that cybersecurity professionals just are by nature incredibly determined, highly intelligent, quick-thinking individuals, but they're covert by nature, right? They're not with these uh, major social skills. I've gone to ISSA meetings, and they all, like, sit down at the table uh, waiting for the presentation to start during the networking time. So one of the things when I do these types of presentations, <laughs> seriously, I'm not kidding you, but I think it, it, it comes from uh, see it all the time. It's crazy. The background that they have. So I actually, um, the backgrounds of where they come from, right? So a lot of them come from law enforcement or military. So there's no nonsense when a meeting started, right? You sit down at that table and you better be on time and you better be on task and you better have your agenda ready to go and ready your talking points and all your things. And that doesn't work in the corporate world, right? So yeah. in the corporate world, I'm not saying people are slacking or anything, but there's that whole connection piece. You are a manager. You really do not need to get all up in somebody's personal business. But you really have to understand like their personalities, what makes them tick. And that's how you're going to build loyalty to a team. And that's how you're going to make a team strive is really taking the time just to get to know somebody. This, you know, little things like, you know, knowing that their kid might have a soccer game the night before. Um, and that might be why they're a little bit more, you know, tired coming in, you know, to the office and then, or, you know, distracted or something. There's like a level of understanding, right? That connection point. And that really has to, that's the team building piece. Uh, and one of the things I, again, always tell them to do is to really take the time to, you know, certainly start your meetings in time when you want to be productive, but have a little bit of moment where you just ask somebody how they're doing that morning or that afternoon. Right, right. And, and just get a little bit of the rapport versus like, okay, this is what we have to do right now and you do it and then, you know, walk away. Uh, and I think that's the backgrounds where they come from again. And teaching them that it's okay to ask people how they're doing um, and if they need help and building that relationship. Because, you know, who's going to want to make a 911 call to someone that they don't really know and expect them to answer? You've got to, being a part of a team, there's going to be strengths and weaknesses of everybody on that team. And a strong team is going to complement those strengths and weaknesses. But you've got to understand what those strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, and have that rapport. It is so important to have um, just a relationship. I'm saying a professional relationship with the people that work for you or work around you because if you need help with something or you're not really kind of getting the whole thing picture together, sitting down and having that conversation, whether it's virtual conversation or actually just sitting in a conference room is really, really important to have those types of connections. And I think that makes a stronger, well-rounded type of uh, security professional. And then you kind of fast forward, right, if they have aspirations to be in a, uh, in a leadership managerial type of role, now all of a sudden you've got to have a bit of a salesman type of marketer type of hat on there because all of a sudden you're, you're putting together your strategy. You've got to go out there and sell that strategy and plan and go get a budget for it. You're going in front of a board of directors. You're going in front of your leadership team. You're going in front of customers. So there's a lot of different things that different path. Not everyone's going to be an external type of facing type of personality, uh, outward kind of person. But I think you have to have some type of connection with people, no matter how shy it is or hard that is. 
And I think that you've got to really make that investment as well in emotional intelligence about yourself as much as you're doing in terms of your technical side. That's how you're going to stand out. You know, there is a lot of opportunities out there, right, and a lot of job openings. But if the person can't really connect or speak, I have employers say, you know what, they have a lot of great skills on there, but, you know, I can't really understand them. They're not connecting with our other team members. I'm going to pass on that individual. So I've seen that happen because they are lacking in some of those softer skills. For the senior folks out there that are listening to the show today and that share your passion in advancing the cybersecurity industry and helping people manage their careers, what do you suggest they do to get involved to pay it forward? So I think it's pretty easy to make a, make a difference out there and, you know, partner up with an ISSA organization, volunteer perhaps your time if they're doing a capture the flag event. If you're a technical type of person, go out there, you know, and volunteer to be one of those coaches or, you know, referees uh, for a capture the flag type of program. Go into your kid's school and offer to, you know, the headmaster or the principal of the school that you are a cybersecurity professional, and there's a lot of things that they could teach them. I'm going into the Atlanta Girls School. You mentioned at the beginning, I was part of the, I am a board of trustee. I'm going to go in and talk to the girls about business, marketing, and sales opportunities in cybersecurity because, you know, we're teaching everyone to want to be, not everyone wants to code. I'm not knocking that or being super technical, but there's some, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that are intimidated. That's not their passion. But there to be, you have to have a technology, uh, an aptitude in technology uh, in the sales arena, the marketing arena, the business arena. What I do, there's a lot of technology behind that makes uh, 10 and ISE talent run. You have to understand what the people are doing. You have to understand what the content's going to be like and just overall even running the business. So giving, you know, getting out there or even just being safe online, volunteering, um, you know, for an afternoon after school and maybe even with some parents in the room is like how to make your kids safe online. Uh, you know, Xbox, some of these video games, they're kind of, you know, uh, all this Alexa in your house, that, you know, things of that nature. How do you just sort of add safety to it? Also, look at volunteering for some of these uh, great programs out there like Europe or, you know, the one I'm doing through TechBridge. Um, there, you know, there's local ones, there's national ones. They really need, like, leaders and expertise out there. And then also, you know, if your company is willing to um, support that, help, uh, you know, through, like, an organization like ICMCP set up a scholarship uh, for a deserving set of uh, in, uh, individuals that need that break, um, you know, but are certainly working hard and want to better and enrich themselves through like, a certification or, a, a, you know, deeper education out there. It actually, believe it or not, it doesn't cost as much as you really would think. Uh, but I will tell you, I would do it over and over again. It's better than any Christmas gift that I've ever given. Uh, or gotten, I should say, is to see the faces of those those young people up on stage when they get their, their scholarship and they know that there's a bright future ahead of them. Uh, but they still have to get the certification. I'm just helping to pay for the, uh, pay for the um, you know, course materials and for them to take the test. But it really isn't that expensive uh, to do something like that. But it really gives an opportunity 
uh, a great feeling for you as an individual and or company that could sponsor that and make a world of difference for somebody else. It could really open a whole nother door of opportunity. And philanthropy and volunteering, it, there's, there's a lot to be said about it. It's really awesome um, when you see, when you made a difference. When you, I got an email um, from one of my LinkedIn students uh, on Christmas Eve, and she said, I'm counting you as one of my blessings this year wow. because I got to learn more about LinkedIn. I was very much against using it, and now after taking the class, uh, I'm out there and using it to find new opportunities, build out my network, um, and promote myself and my achievements and my accomplishments and my studies. And, uh, you know, it was a very intimidating, like, again, it goes back to that lack of uh, the soft skills. Right. You know, they're not promoters of themselves by nature. But there's, there's certain ways of doing it, like on a LinkedIn platform, where it's very acceptable to promote your skills and uh, your knowledge and actually engage and collaborate with other people that are like-minded like yourself. Well, wow, that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm sure that a lot of people out there are listening to what you're saying, coming up with even different, different kinds of ideas and how they can help. And, and this is, a, you know, it's, it's very rewarding, too, when you get to help somebody. When someone calls you up and says, hey, look, you know, you're a big part of why I'm successful – People appreciate that. Like people really like to help people make their careers, and I don't think young folks actually realize that a lot. They don't realize that there's people out there that really enjoy helping other people. They get a lot of satisfaction and a lot of reward out of that. And maybe it's for selfish reasons, make them feel good. But still, hey, it's you know, it, it's it, it's still great to see them do it, and uh, it's absolutely wonderful. And uh, I love to do it. I know I, I get a lot of uh, reward out of it. You know, I'll speak for myself and. You know, when uh, you get that kind of call, when you get that kind of, you know, Christmas card or even, you know, the thank you card or, the you know, the, the call once in a while to say, hey, you know, this is how I'm doing and, you know, thank you so much and, and, and I appreciate all the guidance and direction you gave me. It really helped me a lot, saved me a lot of time uh, and, and effort and I really got to where I wanted to go. I, that's fantastic. But, uh, Marcy, we've got to take another short break here from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from the president and CEO of 10. Mrs. Marcy McCarthy. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. 
Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the president and CEO of 10, Mrs. Marcy McCarthy. So, Marcy, for this segment, I want to sort of uh, switch gears a little bit to close out the, the episode, and I want to talk a little bit about policy and regulation, topics that I know you've been involved with and have uh, extensive knowledge and, and opinions on. And so, being that you are also, along with the many different roles that you play in the industry, the, the Advisory Council Chairman of the National Technology Security Coalition, and that you're working very closely with Fortune 500 CISOs to promote advocacy and legislation and sound policies in the cybersecurity space. I wanted to get your opinion on what do you think is coming down the pipe in terms of regulations and laws for 2019? Well, I think with the change, uh, you know, in Congress, uh, the House of Representatives being on the Democrat side and certainly the more Republicans on the Senate side, I, um, and then the flagrant, you know, practices of companies like Facebook and Google and sort of thumbing their nose and saying one thing and another. I think there's a real set of backlash out there against these companies. So they're calling their congressmen and senators and saying, you know, protect my data. Now there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? So all of a sudden you want to know, no one ever wants to pay for Facebook or things of that nature. Your Your ticket to entry is is your data sharing and uh, getting, you know, uh, that type of thing out there. But what I'm seeing is the need for some rules of engagement that people can live with. Uh, I think the GDPR piece is very complex and very difficult to, they're going to find very difficult to implement and enforce, but they're going to be looking for companies to get that big ticket item, like, you know, from a Google for example, or Microsoft, you know, sort of that scapegoat where that's a lot of money to bring back into your economy out there. And then you have some real aggressive states like California really trying to pass uh, some privacy laws just like GDPR. So 
Here in the States, though, I think we've got to work collectively first, um, and I've been wanting to do this for a really long time. We have 50 unique or 50 plus unique single uh, breach notification type of laws. I think we need to pass one that preempts all the state laws and is at the federal level. Because right now there's just a tremendous amount of complexity uh, when there, a breach has happened and there's no accountability for it. Let's use the Marriott breach, the Starwood breach. I am actually a Marriott um, uh, Starwood customer and I'm actually sitting in a Marriott or, you know, right now, uh, a Westin hotel. And at the end of the day, they never told me anything for days on end. I found out about the breach notification um, through watching, you know, a news station like CNN uh, and, and Fox and it coming through my phone. Actually, when I was in a, in a Westin in Dallas, I got one letter from them. And they don't, I can't tell me if my data has been compromised or anything like that. So I think we've got to have a collective um, set of rules of engagement that people, both the companies are comfortable with and that there's penalties there that are reasonable uh, versus unreasonable because some of the ones that are in play right now are very unreasonable uh, in terms of penalties that would literally wipe a company off a map. And sometimes one has to realize that the company is also a victim of some of these cyber breaches. No ignorance is not an excuse, nor is it blue. Uh, bliss, but the company sometimes is also a victim of a nation state or organized type of attack uh, against them. And then on the flip side, the constituency, the consumer, they really need to be able to hold these companies accountable um, and have a consistent manner in which they're communicated and as well as they're protected. And they also have a right to know where their data is going and how it's being utilized. And it, you know, reading of no one's going to read a very complex user statement acceptance agreement. And what do you? What if you do disagree with Facebook? Are you going to not use Facebook and not accept the? I don't agree with the terms of and try to send them in some edits and red lines for the agreement. It's never going to happen. Uh, so right. I think some rules have to really change out there. And I think we're in the the in the right time to do so. Um, but I think we've got to do so in a very very thoughtful manner. My work with the NTSC is about engaging the different companies out there, the, you know, the larger Fortune 500 type of companies, and actually for the first time asking them what do they think. Uh, a lot of times in previous administrations, uh, we've had a lot of knee-jerk reactions like, oh my God, this happened, and you know, people are with their hair on fire, and they're trying to pass legislation that isn't really thoughtful. Uh, in the long terms of consequences because it didn't really ask a cybersecurity executive at a major corporation that was also their company was a victim also of a cyber crime. And I think we also have to look at partnering more together from the private and public sector to have those types of information sharing and those conversation. I do know for, you know, many of these companies, like the, the many companies are on the radar of our law enforcement, um, and government, and they're monitoring that, but they can't step in because of the laws, right? They may know that their data might be ciphering out, that they can't go in there because it didn't, you know, there's no justification for a warrant. They have to sort of sit back. That happened, you know, with some of the credit card processing companies in the, in the, in the last decade. They knew the data was being siphoned out, but they couldn't go to them because there was no 
ability to actually have that partnership and have that without, um, you know, because of laws that were on the books. So let me ask you, you said we had to do this in a very, uh, I guess, sensitive way. We have to really be in a thoughtful way. And I totally agree with that. But I've seen some articles out there in the news that seem to me to be quite an overreaction in, in the regulation space. Like in some reports I've seen, uh, you know, senators calling for CISOs to be jailed if, they, if there is a significant cybersecurity failure. I mean, what do we do about that? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's sort of a knee-jerk reaction of Sarbanes-Oxley, right? That came after, you know, that was passed where actually a CEO and a CFO can go to jail. Uh, if they're, you know, in, uh, defying Sarbanes-Oxley. So I think it's sort of like an offshoot of, well, why can't they be responsible? But I think if you have uh, a CISOs going to jail because their predecessor might not have implemented the right technology or they didn't get the support, I don't, I don't think that's really like a really good way to uh, promote the profession or penalize the company. Um, it's certainly not an individual that might, yeah, I mean, there's zero-day threats. Where, where's that line kind of cross, you know, there? Um, I think when you put financial penalties in place, I do believe that you need to have them, but I think they cannot put a company out of business. I think that's really wrong. Um, so a lot, some of the legislation that's out there that's being tossed around is, like, significant. Like, like if there's one that's right now out there um, that would literally – put like a company like Equifax out of business. Now, what would that have accomplished, right? Right. right. Okay. I mean, it employs how many people, you know, what, what, there's a lot of positive what Equifax does. Yes, they were um, asleep at the wheel. They've known for months that there was a problem, but do you, you know, Susan Malden belong in jail because, you know, she wasn't the best CISO in the industry. And previously, leading up to that point, she was actually a very respected individual. I just don't think that makes a lot of sense either. Um, I think you've got to put some guidelines in place that's reasonable, what a company can digest. Um, you know, we have HIPAA. We have uh, PCI is not really a law, but, it, you know, it's what the credit card industry uses and a lot of financial institutions, you know, put in place. Um, we also have rules around PII. I think we've just got to work together collectively. I don't think it's smart to have 50-plus uh, single, you know, breach notification laws that are completely conflicting with each other and only at the end of the day confuse uh, a customer or a consumer and then really create an air of opportunity for um, a hacker to take advantage of the chaos and a fulfillment company that's sending out the letters or, a, you know, a class action law firm that's really just kind of preying on these individuals that don't really understand what a identity theft is. Marcy, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you spending time with us tonight. Thanks. And have a great trip. Well, thank you, George. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Okay, folks, we've run out of time once again. Before we go, I'll remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there.
Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.